All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Sex Sales Podcast, the podcast where we talk about culture, dating, relationships, and just a bit of everything from a male and female perspective. Today, we're talking about the limits to personal freedom. Should there be limits to personal freedom? We live in a very relatively free society, it does seem. For This was one of my topics that I wanted to uh, explore and it seems like a big priority for Western society today is being able to maximize people's individual autonomy, <clears throat> their personal freedom insofar as it does not harm others. And what are the potential limits to that? Is that always a good thing? We're going to unpack that and we're going to get stuck into that at the three minute mark. Before we do, uh, a few announcements and sponsors and the first one is that there's a huge solo show of mine, but also the first ever Comedy Untamed showcase happening at the end of the year in Sydney. So if you live in Sydney, you have to come to this because we're going to fly in the best act from the Brisbane show, from the Melbourne show, and then there'll be the best act from the Sydney show, and then there'll be a wild card. They're all going to do 10 minutes. I'm going to host the whole thing, and you guys in the audience get to vote who the first ever comedy untamed up and coming australian comedian we'll come up with a better title for the Love winner that. there and uh yeah the the goal is to create an institution where australian comedians can showcase themselves and make a name for themselves so uh it's going to be the start of something big so get along to that i'll also be doing my show in the second half it's a big night uh neilcolehatka.com slash tickets or the comedy untamed website for that one if you live in sydney or the surrounding areas and, of course, we have shows across the East Coast as well. Uh, we're also sponsored by Crush Organics. Crush Organics have a big range of CBD oil and CBD oil products. I've been using that uh, pain cream. It's been. Uh, I also use it on my, on my jaw before I sleep because I tend to clench my jaw a little bit and grind my teeth. That's slowly worn away my teeth. I've got to get the, what are they called when they get the replacement? All the people in Bondi have them. Veneers? Yeah, I'll get veneers <laughs> one day because otherwise I'll just grind my teeth to nothing. So, uh, but that anyway, that, that pain cream helps. So if you grind your teeth, use that pain cream. Go to crushorganics.com, crush with a K, use the code Neil, N-E-E-L, not N-E-I-L, and you get 40% off. So those are two amazing things that you got to get on board with, Crush Organics and the Big Comedy Untamed Gala. And uh, if you'd like to sponsor this podcast, hit me up, neil.business at outlook.com. We're looking for maybe one or two more sponsors. We'll start with a very cheap rate, introductory period. Hit us up. All right, let's get into the podcast. Okay, so the inspiration for this topic was as I was researching waifuism, which was our topic last week. I just couldn't help but feel that there is a lack of shaming. This is going to sound harsh straight off the bat, but we have the inability to shame anyone at this point in Western society. We have the inability to engage in conflict with people, especially if it's something that they might be engaging in that doesn't necessarily hurt people around them. It might even be hurting just, just themselves. Uh, but there's an argument to be made as to whether it may be hurting their social group and the country at large. A perfect example of this is something like waifuism. One person might say, well, who are they hurting? They're in love with a fictional character. They're going off at home. Sorry, they're, well, they're probably getting themselves off at home, but they're, 
going home and uh, enjoying the pseudo-intimate relationship that they're having with the anime character. Why do you care? Why do we need to shame people who are just doing something that gives them a lot of pleasure? Um, Another example could be someone who is a heavy drug user. It's something like weed or uh, even, even, you know, some of the um, hallucinogenic drugs, pills or acid, if they're doing it a lot, daily even, uh, and it's not necessarily hurting anyone around them, why do people care if they're doing that? Why does it matter? And my argument to that and something I've been thinking about a lot, particularly just over the last couple of weeks, is that, sure, there may not be an individual cost to anyone else other than that person, but there's a societal cost. If one person is smoking weed every day, and I'm talking about to the point where they can barely work, um, I mean, I, you know, I think league should be, uh, weed should be legal. But mm. in a country of 25 million people like Australia, let's say 10 million of them smoke weed every day and are 40% less productive. And I know people who smoke weed are going to be in the comments saying, well, that's a stereotype that people are less productive. Let's just say there's some behavior that doesn't actually hurt anyone else directly but is making people less productive, less social People aren't able to fulfill their potential based on this behavior. Another one could be porn. Cigarettes. Cigarettes, right? (laughs) At what point is there a limit to that personal freedom where Mm. someone theoretically is free to watch porn all day, smoke 10 cigarettes a day, smoke weed, do all these things, and they're only hurting themselves, and they're an adult and they're allowed to do that legally, but at what point are we allowed to say, hey, this is a, these are bad life choices that you're making. They're not only hurting you, but they're just hurting society because what happens is the people around you are likely influenced to do those things as well. And there's just a general sort of there's – a, there's a just a, the sanctity of uh, society's values seem, seemingly being degraded just, just – a little bit each time someone engages in certain behaviors like that. Now, that's obviously an extreme example, but let's say it's something like, I don't know, when we talk about fat shaming today, right? Uh, There's clearly an argument to be said against people who are excessive in their shame towards people who might be overweight and calling them cows or saying they're just, you know, they, they don't deserve to uh, get married and things like that, some really extreme arguments that I've seen on social media. Mm. But then there's another extreme, which is that, all right, there's just no, that no one should be shamed for what are medically poor health choices. And again, someone might not be hurting anyone if they're overeating every day and they, they might be quite obese. They're only hurting themselves. So what is the argument to to say that they should be shamed or there should be some restrictions on that behavior? And again, I'll just say, look, it's 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 a societal cost. There's a there's a cost to the collective of the people in that social group, in that community, in that country. If everyone engaged in those behaviors, I don't think that would be a healthy society. Um, and so this is a very sort of broad and theoretical topic but it it seems to me that the pendulum has shifted too far one way 
at least what it seems like from social media, where we're just so afraid to shame anyone to the point where it's almost the reverse is happening, where other people are being shamed for causing shame to other people, even if it's indirectly. Like I might not even Mm. be trying to shame other people and it might be something I said on a on a podcast or something I tried to articulate in a in a video, and someone might message me saying, "Hey, when you said this, that this really upset me." Well, one, that wasn't my intention. I don't I don't really know you personally, and I, I still believe fundamentally believe in what I was saying um, in that in that podcast mm. or in that video. And how much do we need to restrict people's? Fr- I suppose there's two types of freedom. There's the freedom of someone to not move through life feeling negative emotions such as shame, but then there's the freedom of people to be able to speak their mind. Um, And then also coming back to the actions, uh, at what point does it become not not appropriate but maybe necessary or, or actually healthy for society to employ a healthy degree of shame or, or constructive criticism, if you want to call it, uh, in order to just maintain civic civil society and get the best out of everyone. Anyway, those are very sort of that's a very broad introduction to this topic, and we're also going to talk about this book I'm reading at the moment um, by Jonathan Haidt, and uh, it's really fascinating. It's called The Righteous Mind, and he talks about the six uh, sort of moral counterbalances that people generally have and how that manifests in different political opinions. Um, but what mm. do you think on this like broad concept of ha- how much can people truly be free if it's not hurting anyone else? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> based on the survey result I just did, apparently I want everyone to do what they want. Um <laughs> I think I think that's what that means, um, but I guess we'll get into that in a bit. But yeah, it's it is a complicated. My brain already hurts just thinking about it um, and hypothesizing reasons and everything. But I do feel that I almost feel like it's less about a fear of shaming people. I do think that that it, there are elements of that, but I also feel like there's a big swing of people just not wanting to or not having the desire or interest in shaming other people or not feeling like those people even need to be shamed in the first place. For example, people that are obese or people that do not subscribe to our traditional ways of love and intimacy, um, open or non-open relationship, all these things. Um, So in some ways we're in an interesting culture where we call out people a lot less, but in other ways we do call out people a lot more. And like you said, we may be more inclined to call out people that call out other people. So we're in the cycle. Um, But it is a really interesting question about what are the actual limits to personal freedom and when do we intervene? Like why have we put laws around drugs, alcohol, cigarettes? I think in New Zealand, I might be wrong, but I'm pretty sure in New Zealand they've said they're going to stop selling cigarettes to people born after a certain year just recently. Um, or they've put some intense laws in around that. But why do we allow access to pornography for 12-year-olds to watch? And that's not illegal, yet it's legal to – but yet it is illegal to smoke cigarettes or purchase alcohol. So what makes it legal versus not legal? Is it the danger? Is it perceived impacts on health? Is it the contribution to society or changes to that? And then when I was thinking about this question, the first thing that came to my mind was um, 
parents as well and how we have the freedom as parents to raise our children in whatever way we please, um, assuming that they're not abused or neglected, in which case there will be intervention. But I'm on this, um, on a Reddit, there's a subreddit called Shit Mum Shit Mum Groups Say. And usually it's really funny, but it's also really sad. And so many times it's screenshots from like people that are a bit what we would call a crunchy mum, which is like more naturally inclined, home births, anti-medicine. And people post all the time being like, oh, my daughter's um, got extreme fevers, vomiting for four days, um, rash all over. I don't want to take her to the doctor though. Or my doctor's trying to get me on antibiotics. I don't believe in antibiotics. What natural remedies can you suggest? I've put, I've hung a sock over her cot. I've given her rosemary and castor oil, like all these things um, where it borderlines on inappropriate, unethical and dangerous, yet they have the freedom and the right to make those choices for their infants. Um, and then it's like, well, is that net medical neglect? Or like I was talking about, Previously, on a lesser extreme level, uh, when I was talking about last week, that you can put your child from birth in front of screens or iPads 10 hours a day where research will show that they're more likely to develop a myriad of issues later in life if you do that in screen time. There's basically not a single benefit to it, yet people do that. Um, and there's no intervention on that. So it is what's interesting to me is how some things are left up to our devices and others are not. And why, who determines what's more dangerous to the person or society? Exactly. And, there's and two, how is that determined? <laughs> there's two elements to that. There's the, uh, le- the legal principle of making something Mm. Uh, you know, preventing people from doing something by way of force. Uh, and then there's the cultural principle of doing it. So by maybe shaming or or alternatively having a positive narrative associated with alternative behaviours. So, for example, something that we can all agree is, is wrong, uh, giving a five-year-old a cigarette or something like that. Let's say I'm sure there's laws <laughs> saying yeah. that you can't do that, but then also that would be shunned by the social group if anyone found out a parent was doing that they would definitely condemn them i'm I'm assuming the vast majority of people Mm. um and also there's just enough positive influence telling you hey you shouldn't this is what you should be doing for your kids and none of that involves giving them a cigarette Mm. right that's a very extreme Mm. example but then something like what you were talking about or fast food for kids then okay a lot of parents give fast food to their kids and then I got in a discussion with my girlfriend the other day about she thinks that sugar should be banned or should there should be just much more regulations on yeah. on sugar and fast food. And I wasn't sure because I thought, well, often when regulations are imposed, it's a, one, it's a cost to the taxpayer, but also the argument against that is that, well, there'll be a benefit in the long term. But then, you, you know, you create these bureaucracies and um, I think – for for some basic health guidelines, it's important, but it's better if we can do these things culturally. If there's just a culture that emerges that uh, encourages people to to not give their kids fast food, mm. that seems to be the best option. Mm. And I think that's more powerful uh, yeah. because, say, when 
you know, schools or by proxy the government intervenes in adolescence trying to uh, encourage them not to engage in what we know are behaviours that would be likely detrimental to them in the long term, such as <clears throat> excessive drinking, um, you know, unprotected sex, these sorts of things. I mean, it's Australia. Everyone does it anyway. But And how do they do that? They do it in a very cringy way. They bring in, you know, some fa- actors that haven't gotten enough roles to do like a cringy play <laughs> about why it's bad to take drugs. And knowing what teenagers are like, this just makes them want to do it more probably. Mm. So uh, there's, a, there's a way to do it effectively and I don't think uh, having too much of a you know, the government say is the most effective way. I think cultural, uh, you know, culturally mm. enforcing certain attitudes is a far more effective way of uh, encouraging people to behave in a way that's conducive to the growth of the society or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. And then the other thing is um, how powerful is shame? It seems like it's something that is inbuilt into us where there's people who talk a lot about trying to build a shame-free society, but how do they try to enforce that shame-free society? By just shaming people who shame others. So and a perfect example is that what I was talking about where people will say we shouldn't fat shame and then someone who might not even be fat shaming but saying, hey, you should go to the gym every day. I do and it's helped me so much. And then they might get – this is an extreme example. I don't think there's many people who would do this but I have seen things like this on the internet where, you know, gym culture is being is has been associated with Nazism. Like it's this perverse yeah, link yeah, where – same with um, veganism. Yeah, yeah this uh, bizarre link where they find anything that Hitler or Mussolini yeah. – liked or was into and then just immediately slapped the label of fascism or Nazism onto it. Mm. And, yeah, Hitler was a vegetarian and, you know, Mussolini Apparently loved he wasn't even. soccer or something. <laughs> and so it's just yeah. such a tenuous and ridiculous link to make. But yeah. the shame is then coming from the other people. So they're not actually trying to create a shame-free society. They're just using shame for um, uh, for to, to try and create a reality that they feel most comfortable in. Mm. And... Uh, it relates to the book I, I'm reading and, and Jonathan Haidt, he talks about there being, um, well, he has a moral foundations theory and Haidt argues that humans have six moral foundations through which we view politics and policy, care slash harm, fairness slash cheating, loyalty slash betrayal, authority slash subversion, sanctity slash degradation, and then liberty slash oppre- oppression. And these moral foundations, according to Haidt, act as our political taste buds and explain our political preferences in the same way that our lingual taste buds explain our culinary preferences. Some political ideologies rely on the care-slash-harm foundation, while others rely on the loyalty-slash-betrayal foundation. And both, Eliza and I, there's an online test you can do. We both got uh, left liberal, which... uh, I don't know. Everyone thinks I'm right wing for some reason, but yeah, I'm, no one like, would I'm be not, surprised but, <laughs> me getting that. But you, yeah. everyone, probably like what? I mean, I talk in a very um, sometimes it could be perceived as a strict sort of way, but I think it's also because I've been in the arts for so long, and the arts is an echo chamber that is extremely left wing, and I'm constantly reminded of just how extreme that social bubble is when I talk to even my I was talking to my sister a few weeks ago and I was saying 
you know, all these people, everyone has a mental illness now. And then she's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and I'm like, oh, wait, that's just an artistic thing. <laughs> um, so the, you yeah. know, the, the way um, maybe some of the right-wing commentators talk about Gen Z is applicable to me because I can see that in my surroundings, but it's not necessarily applicable to other people. And I constantly have to remind myself of that. But uh yeah, it's uh, it's just interesting that he um, has been able to create this paradigm. And what was your highest? What was your um, strongest moral foundation? Care. No fairness. Fairness. Yeah. Fairness. Um, which yeah, I mean, that's important. Yeah. But then, how do you enforce something? Like you got to shame people who are acting in an unfair way. You are big on like. On justice, I feel. Don't you think? Yeah. Yeah, I suppose I am. I, all of these things can be in, interpreted in yeah. in different policies. So fairness could be, say, something like freedom of expression. Uh, to me, it seems fair that everyone has the same right to speak freely, whereas you can make an argument that, well, some people have, have to... Uh, ex- bear the cost of more emotional harm when everyone is allowed to speak freely. So the truly fair thing to do would be to uh, minimise people's ability to speak freely based on the power of their group. And so you, in, both people are argu- arguing for fairness in that mm. regard. It's just a different interpretation of fairness. Uh, what's well, it says here that this foundation pertains to our ability to maintain cooperative and mutually beneficial relationships. Yeah. Underlies the virtues of honesty, justice, and dependability. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's yeah. – well, I think everyone thinks that's important. It's just yeah. how that manifests in in the world. And then the authority one was one you got a very low one in. I got, I got yeah. high, but then it's just – yeah, I think I've changed on that a, a lot. I think as I get old – I think when I was younger, I thought, yeah, man, fuck the man, yeah. do whatever you want, and then – I just think there's a there's a need for authority for a, for a hierarchical organization to succeed. You need to have yeah. people who are the most competent in positions of power. Yeah. Now that doesn't mean the they are infinitely perfect and they can never that you know that they need to be entrenched in those positions of power. But it, it's it's more effective when uh, competent people have more influence in an organization and. I even tried to, when I started this side business I'm currently doing, I tried to run it as a co-op, right? And I thought, well, if you just give people the right opportunity, then they'll excel and meet that bar. And I just, I didn't, it didn't Wait, work. Wait, can you explain what, what co-op is? Co-op is, um, sorry, not a co-op, um, a par- well, a partnership. So right. three with of us. With one person would, or with multiple? No, with multiple. So three right. of us owned an equal share of the business and yeah. I wanted everyone to have as much influence in it and speak yeah, their mind right. and I wanted it to be a very collaborative thing and it just did not work. It did not work. Yeah. You needed someone in charge who yeah. had the most experience and might be the most competent to make uh, the, the bulk of those decisions and that organisation will prosper as a result. Now, when that yeah. difference between the person in power and the subordinates are too extreme, then you can 
come into issues. And then on a, on a larger scale, when you have multiple organizations with those extreme differences, you can create a whole underclass of people who are just not getting their physiological needs met. Uh, yeah. But the basic principle, which I probably would disagree with maybe some people who are more uh, so, social, socialist inclined, is that, no, I don't think everyone is equally capable and it's just the environment that causes those inequities. I think there are just some people who either based on genetics or to an extent upbringing but also work ethic be, do are more competent and can become more even more competent it, it, it sort of become an exponential force there and they should be given a disproportionately larger influence within an organization or even society now not to the degree where those other people who may not be as competent feel like their dignity uh is lost but to me that actually is fairness if someone Say you, you take 10 high school kids and one of them scores the highest on mathematics in, on all the subjects but also gets to school the earliest and just uh, engages in behaviours that you would think would be the most conducive to an organisation's success. Well, they should be, assuming they also have good social ability, they should be in charge of an organisation if they were to build an organisation with those 10 people. Uh, where some mm. people would say, no, those 10 people should have an equal say and th that one person just happens to be, you know, they, they just happen to, that's how their brain works or something. But then I would argue, well, okay, you have multiple groups of these 10 hypothetical people and there's an array of ways you can sort of organise that structure. Well, the the structure that is the most effective will be the one that prospers in the end. And you've got to create conditions where the most yeah. um, structurally beneficial organizations prosper. And that's why, I, I yeah, I'm, I'm maybe more, I wouldn't even say, I don't think I'm right wing. I mean, like, I don't know, centrist. I think there's a, there's a, there's a big benefit to, you know, for as much liberty as is reasonably possible. But there's also uh, in, in, in my personal life, I try to be as charitable as I can and, I really value fairness and uh, in fact, there's another book that I think would be very interesting for people to read, especially if they're more like us, the left liberal types. Uh, who It's called Who Really Cares and it was written by someone who's an, an American liberal who his intention initially writing the book was trying to decipher why people on the, the liberal side of politics are more compassionate and give more to charity. And then he found the complete opposite, that people who would uh, describe themselves as right-wing gave more to charity and a lot more. And mm. the main difference was just in the the way people would signal and speak about that. Now, it was written in the mid-2000s. That could have changed. But uh, it's a very interesting read and can change a yeah. lot of people's minds. Yeah, it's. I think that's... It's highly cultural as well where I see in so much um, American forums that it's like 10% of your income should be allocated to charity uh, and that's such a thing over there that I've never heard of about here. And, but until I dated someone who was in um, a very Catholic family and him and all their family and all their friends from the church, they all did that as well. 
they donate to the church every week and then 10% of their income goes to charity. It's just a thing. Um, they do so both. I find that, yeah, yeah, wow. absolutely. Really fascinating. Um, although the what they donated to was usually more Catholic, you know, organizations or Catholic-run charities. Um, but, yeah, super fascinating. I think that as well with the thing on authority because I – rated super low in that and I was saying to Neil that I always have which I find um I never know why like I wish I knew which which questions <laughs> were associated to authority in this quiz so I could figure out which ones it is because uh, I never feel like I have issues with authority maybe I do but um it every quiz I do, do comes back with this same result for me so for me I had care was 97% so that was very dominant and then authority was my lowest at 28. But when you talk about like competent leadership and things like that, I a hundred percent agree expecting that the leader is competent. Um, and I think that the other thing of mine that was low was actually loyalty. So I feel that when I don't feel that there is that competent leader or, or authority, I have no loyalty to them. I leave immediately or resist or whatever. Um, so I think those are why those two for me are low, uh, where I'm more willing to up and leave something that I disagree with. And I'm not saying that's right or better. Um, that's just how it is for me, I guess. But yeah, no, I find that really interesting. I want to read the book to further understand it, but it is what I like is how that it draws from your political views and values as well as just your morals uh, and what, how does that link together? Like what is your moral foundation and yet what is your, what, how does that link to what your closest uh, political view is? So like both of ours was left liberal, which was interesting. I remember when you did that, um, that thing on Instagram, that poll asking what people thought, and it was almost like 50, 50, wasn't it? For also happy about that. Yeah. And good. I was looking at it and I was like, oh, I want to vote to see the results, but I literally don't know. <laughs> I don't even know which one he is. Um, so that was fascinating. It feels like no one no one knows where you sit. <laughs> Everyone was just like, Yeah, hmm, take a little pride in that. Maybe this. Yeah. <laughs> You're um, just completely neutral. <laughs> I mean, it, de- it just depends on the issue, really. Uh, yeah, I, I'm left yeah. leaning on to uh, I'd say when it's uh, large systemic issues that I fundamentally believe in and can read how this is affecting society at large yeah. and they have a long-term effect rather than the more, you know, often myopic view of certain individuals and and corporations, then I would lean towards a sort of governmental approach. Something like that is climate change. I'd say I lean left on that. Um, But then on issues like, say, crime, I'd say I lean lean right. I think um, the the, just um, the importance of having a civil and... Uh, crime-free society is more important. I would even go so far as to say it's more important than rare one-off instances where even if someone was wrongly arrested, I mean, like, that that shouldn't happen, but I don't think mm. you can get a perfect society either way. And I'm so passionate about just lowering crime rates and there should be punishment for it. And it could be just I've sort of delved into it and it might be the way I brought up and that you know there was some mm. crime there that i've experienced and right. don't get too <laughs> into that but uh it's just something that i'm i'm quite strong on actually uh oh. and then maybe yeah i get freedom of speech but that was always a that was always a left liberal um concern you know through the 60s it was 
in America at least it was the people on on the on the left that were talking about free speech and rock and roll mm. bands and you know all these sort of icons of free speech and personal freedom of the 60s and then that sort of NWA, switched a little bit exactly yeah <laughs> and it sort of switched yeah. a little bit recently where um it's a bit both now there's still a religious right that might want to restrict speech although they're less likely to do it through the means of government and then there's now i guess what you would call a woke left who um well, they it's not they want to restrict speech, but they're coming from a harm foundation where they believe that speech can harm people in an unequal way, can harm groups in an unequal way, and that um, they want to uh, ameliorate that. So, I probably lean right on that, and then I don't know on taxes and things. I'd centrist, I guess. I don't I don't want there to be. Yeah. Too many. T- <laughs> if the government, it, it's more like you got to trust what the government does with those taxes, yeah. and then you're more inclined yeah. to pay more. And then you, I'll be like, yeah, take. It's going to be all really good stuff. And then yeah, sure, take like fifty percent <laughs> of my taxes. But if it's going to be politicians taking those taxes and being corrupt and you know putting them towards whatever nuclear submarines or whatever, well then, then I don't want to. Then you know, then you actually become a bit more right wing because you think, well, like I don't, I don't have faith in the government to do the things that expect them to do so it's uh it's fluid if anything i don't know i don't like we all a little bit left fluid? right yeah we're all we're yeah. all politically fluid i, don't, I, don't, so I think true. that left right thing's very um simplistic oh i think oh hi shorty <laughs> i haven't seen you in a while i think that the question of per- <laughs> of personal freedom and the limits of that it comes almost more down to like legality aside and laws aside it comes down to morals a lot when you think about what's stopping someone from uh, doing, yeah, harmful things to their children or what stops someone from killing their cat or their pets or what stops someone from ordering a sex doll of a child um, and these things that are harmful. Is it law that is stopping us from doing that or is it morals and should the law be stopping us from doing things for our own personal you know, whims and wants. And when we talk about things that are harmful, like drugs and, and cigarettes and drinking, why should the government decide that we can or cannot do those things or partake in that? But then when I have been worked with particularly young people that go into drug addiction and um, psychosis, I'm so thankful that there are at least some hurdles they have to get through in order to access these things because, it's so devastating that imagine what would happen if it was a free-for-all, do what you want. And I have seen, I've gone on some dark rabbit holes of like what would you do if there was no laws, like it was like The Purge and the base of the movie The Purge was basically for 24 hours once a year there are no laws and you can do what you want. So people go and loot shops, they murder people. And I saw on um, I think it was Reddit, probably Reddit, some, some kind of forum People saying, what would you do if there was a situation like that? And so many people were saying they'd rape someone. Like if there were no consequences, they'd rape people. Um, And it's so like scary and devastating to hear it that that is what people are upvoting and commenting saying that's what their mind is instinctively going to. If there were no consequences – I would do this regardless of the harm that I'm putting onto someone else. 
So then it's like, then there's a whole other question of how much not only is morals linked into it, but, and values, but our own empathy. Um, and how essential is empathy in our personal freedom for what we choose to do in our decisions we make? Empathy prevents us from harming our children in that sense. It prevents us from killing our pets. It prevents us from harming others and raping women. Um, so it's, um, yeah, it's really complicated and scary to think about what would society be if there were no limits to personal freedom and what would happen and how much law and order is essential in our society to function. It's wild. Yeah, you need the threat of violence for some people. Yeah. And then you need to give that that ability yeah. to uh, impose those consequences to yeah. a organization that are trained in, you know, upholding the law. And that's the, the need for a strong police force. Uh, I, yeah. I just can't see how else that could function. A lot of these kind of, look, there's a, there's a fairness principle where, you know, police get away with doing what are ob- objectively bad things. And sure, there's definitely something there that needs to be looked at. I, I guess I come from a place where I, I don't think we can ever really achieve perfection. And a lot of people uh, mm. can be quite confronted when I say that, but yeah. I just don't think we're ever going to get to a point. I mean, historically, we never have. I just can't yeah. see a point where there's ever going to be zero crime, zero corruption. There's always going to be bad things in the world, if you want to put it that way, as, as simply as possible. And how do we best minimize that? Uh, and how do we still maintain as much law and order as possible while having the systems in place to drastically minimize those, you know, bad things whilst still allowing as much freedom as is reasonably possible. However, freedom comes at, can come at a societal long-term cost. And I think what we were talking about in the last podcast where, say, a lot of people now have the freedom to choose not to have children uh, but then if a critical mass of people don't do that and their the birth rate goes below one, which in some countries it is, and then they don't want immigration either, well, what do you do at that point? You, you have to then cut pensions because there's not enough working age people uh, bringing in enough money to fund mm, the care for the elderly. So, you know, that these things are – I always see things as trade-offs and I yeah. think that's where people think, oh, you must be right wing because I just am yeah. always very wary of like when 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 someone says like the government should do this, I always come in with a like a right wing devil's advocate. Yeah. But it doesn't <laughs> do, mean yeah. I am right wing. It just yeah. means I yeah. need to know, I need to be confident that you. You're a critical thinker. <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah, I, I like yeah. to think yeah. so. But uh, yeah. I, I just want to know that someone has analyzed the trade-offs and come to a reasonable decision uh, rather than just looking at everything through rose-colored glasses and mm. seeing the world in a, what I believe to be a utopian way where um, it's predicated from this sort of blank slate idea where humans are all blank slates at birth and the only reason people act harmfully towards each other is because there is a culture that compels people to do that, which I don't think is true. I think, I think humans have... Uh, proclivities that many of us would deem immoral and uncomfortable. Now we have um, a pre, I think it's the prefrontal cortex that uh, an ability to sort of overwrite our, you know, reptilian yeah. 
impulses, but I don't think they ever fully go away. And then when we talk about yeah. a huge society with millions of people, there's going to be some people who act upon those, even yeah. if there are consequences. And we have to do what we can to completely minimize it. But if you're coming from a, a perspective that, oh, the only reason people say commit crime or just do anything that we deem to be inappropriate or illegal is because there's a culture that is that permits that, then I'll disagree with that. Now, there's there's definitely some truth to that, but um, I just I just can't fundamentally agree with that. I don't think humans are a blank slate at birth. Yeah, I think a lot of it yeah. comes down to that. Yeah, I mean, when it, when you think about the the science of the psychopath gene, <laughs> which isn't actually a thing, but you know, they say that everyone has it and everyone is born with it. But certain experiences in your life, childhood adversity or trauma can turn on and access that gene, um, which can then inhibit your ability for empathy. You may develop antisocial personality disorder. So it's there's no such thing as a blank slate, but there is a life experience, um, upbringing, culture that impacts us and we learn and sure. develop from that and are heavily influenced from that. Even... Um, just the sheer amount of that two-year-olds are influenced by culture and what they watch on TV. And I'm in this, um, I'm in these groups for attachment parenting and science-based parenting, which I'm really into. And someone was saying that her two-and-a-half-year-old boy, um, she's been really conscious of trying to raise him like feminist, saying women can do this, women can work and labor, they can, you know, do all these jobs, etc. And she's like, I've been trying to instill this in him for so long and the need to respect women. And today he turned around and said to me, well, as much as a two-year-old can talk, um, saying, you can't do that, mommy, you're not strong like boys are. Um, and she was like, where did he learn this? Because it sure as hell wasn't from me. And it's one of those things that even though he that kid wasn't in childcare, he wasn't in daycare, he, he wasn't learning it from his peers, it was just something he'd randomly picked up on either in a show or maybe it's just that societal belief that, you know, you never know, you can't pinpoint it. But my point is, is that there are so many things that are influencing us to be the way that we are and how we develop and how we turn into adults and how our brains develop and the choices that we make stem from that, that everyone's personal freedom and the choices that they choose to make is going to come back to their upbringing or what they were exposed to in their life and that we as a society or laws, we can't change people's morals, values, perceptions, experiences to fit a mould that is, like you said, going to make a perfect society would be impossible. And to some, having society one way would be absolutely optimal, whereas to other people would be their worst nightmare. I'm sure if I describe my ideal society, 90% of the people listening to this would be like, what the fuck? <laughs> absolutely not. And then it comes that like, come, like you said, comes down to, well, this is then the limit to our personal freedom that we don't have unlimited access to our own freedom to make any single choice and decision we want to make um, because mm -hmm. of the potential consequence to that, to a society as a whole. So almost everything is about how can the society or how can our culture function best as a whole rather than as an individual. 
Yeah, we Does that make no, sense? Of of course. Yeah, yeah. we don't. We yeah. really don't have our collective consciousness is severely limited. And I think that's why in social media people are sort of latching onto communities and groups because we yeah. don't have larger organizations, cultures, or groups that we can sacrifice for. And I think we actually want to do that. There's a compulsion in us to give to the tribe and and or work for the tribe or fight for something yeah. bigger than ourselves and we just don't necessarily have that anymore which is ironic isn't it we're, we're in yeah. one of the most safest societies ever mm. and we don't have to a lot of people don't have to sit there farming all day or work you know exorbitant amounts of hours and it's actually changing <laughs> but yeah. um, we, we we are quite you know free uh, but we're not necessarily happy and Coming back to what you were saying about that two-year-old boy, that's interesting because uh, the the strength difference doesn't actually occur in from what I've read. It only from about puberty when this actual strength difference occurs between boys and girls. I think there's like a little bit yeah. of strength yeah. difference um, early on. High so, difference is like less than a centimeter up until the age of twelve, I think. So yeah, he, he yeah. actually has. I don't think he's observed, you know, the differences yeah. between girls and boys, and said, "Oh, look, I can." ascertain that boys are stronger he probably has picked that up from somewhere but um i i think you're right in that you know our our, whatever we're exposed to has a deep influence on us but there are also genetics at play and just sort of biological compulsions at play so example that would be something like um we have an inbuilt fear of correct me if i'm wrong on this anyone in the comments but humans have an inbuilt fear of snakes and spiders and i think they've done a study where they've someone who for whatever reason had never been exposed to snakes or spiders and they were immediately scared of it and it's just inbuilt mm. into us to be afraid of certain animals because you know it would have been advantageous yeah. for us throughout our evolutionary history to avoid snakes and spiders yeah. Yeah. now when you also add that into a culture where say the you know the evil spirit looks like a spider it it just further compels a group to avoid spiders, which would have allowed that tribe or that organization of people to prosper. And that's the argument um, in favor of, say, myths and legends and stories where uh, beneficial behavioral codes are, are put into stories that are passed down because, you know, for most of human history, there wasn't books or there wasn't the written word it was just through stories and and uh you know deities and our ability to think abstractly and the the groups or the tribes that were able to encode you know good behaviors into those stories were the ones that ultimately prospered because again for example they avoided the spider or they avoided the lion or they knew you know you know you look at religions which are very complicated uh philosophical but also spiritual codes and then they'll have things like you know don't eat pork or whatever and and mm-hmm. we think today oh well, what's the point of that but you know when these were written as far as i'm aware pork was far more dangerous to eat because they didn't have the same cooking technology and and the right. bacteria I, I i could be getting this wrong but there was a reason for that and i believe it was because pork was a bit more dangerous to eat and or the pig was dirty or something like that. And so, you know, that then if, if there's just like a group of 10,000 people who – and two groups of 10,000 people and everything is the same except one group doesn't eat pork, well, then the other group 
more people would survive and they'd have a you know a bigger army or they'd just have the ability to come up with more inventions because it's just by sheer numbers and so then that would eventually overtake the other the other group so there's this kind of you know this process of uh cultures com- almost competing against each other to uh figure out the the best way to live if you want to put it that way yeah does that, does that make sense yeah it does and when you when you think about the trying to think about society as a whole rather than the individual then it comes back down to actually i disagree with that because then why aren't we making society into the handmaid's tale? Like, thank God we're not. Like you just said before with people having less and less babies and what if then they're like, well, that impacts society negatively, so therefore let's make it a law. Women have to have children if they're of childbearing ability and things like that. So it's an interesting balance between basically everything, law, biology, definitely a trade-off Values. yeah now no one yeah. Yeah, you know no one would want to be in that your freedom yeah. and tell um type society but you know yeah. if if say one there's two countries next to each other and one it's almost like the the human rights and the morals become irrelevant after a few hundred years say if one society is just continually dwindling in its population and then the other one i don't know forces women to have five kids or something and then that, that just one just by sheer numbers, ends up taking over. I'm not saying this could, this will actually happen, but just theoretically, um, if you don't, that's obviously that's a very extreme example. But when you don't take into account the needs of society at all, and say you have just this kind of libertarians' wet dream of anyone can smoke from any age and do whatever they want, and there's no seatbelts at all, and you can just, you know, anyone can basically do whatever they want as long as it has no direct harm onto anyone well that society would like would, it would just crumble within a few years because yeah. you know when you're 15 you, and, and you're not educ and you don't have the uh appropriate education about cigarettes you smoke and you're like this this feels amazing yeah. i'm gonna keep doing it and yeah. then the cost you don't bear the cost for another 20 30 years yeah. and so um humans aren't good at looking long term and so you need yeah. authoritative sources, whether that's the government or scientists or, yeah, for, you know, philosophers or, you know, p- previous ideas about wisdom. Uh, you need those kind of gems of longer form it, it, c- wisdom that have essentially been collected over centuries and they've they've realised, all right, it's good when people do this for example and so let's encode that into um a a religion now having said that that when the environment and technology changes some of those ideas become outdated and they become obsolete Mm -hmm. for example you know there's hundreds of years ago there's plenty of societies that did human sacrifice and you know maybe there was a might not have been a need for it rationally but there was some sort of spiritual uh valuation of uh an ultimate sacrifice and just the concept of sacrifice is highly valued in these societies and for some reason that actually helped even if one in ten of them died every five years from a human sacrifice somehow that still made things good but then if you did that today 
that's obviously ridiculous. Like you can't do music. Well, <laughs> depends if you believe in the Illuminati or oh, not. <laughs> well, true. There you go. But yeah. I actually have an example of this personal freedom dilemma mm-hmm. on a much smaller scale, very specific small scale. But I've talked about this girl once before on our podcast. Her name, her social media handle is Wheelchair Rapunzel. And she has a disability um, where it's, I can't remember the name of it, but it's basically like severe muscular dystrophy where she's in a wheelchair and has almost no mobility in any of her muscles. So she can't, she can lift a hand and move her fingers and things like that, but can't really hold things um, or struggles to. And anyway, she, I talked about her previously, maybe in the early days of our podcast, because she was a massive advocate for disability and, um, and sex and changing the views on that saying like, why is society so disturbed by disabled people having sex? And she was very sex positive And I loved her for that. Um, she over the years has become increasingly problematic. She's 29 years old and a year ago she started dating a, he was 24 then and, um, year old guy called Noah and he has, um, struggled with drug addiction. His mm. well recently or whatever. And they've only been together for a year. However, three months into their relationship, she fell pregnant. Um, and this is a severely, you know, disabled, physically disabled woman, um, no cognitive disability, uh, disabled woman with a partner who has a drug addiction and he also has a myriad of other um, mental health issues. I think he has borderline personality disorder and um, and more, but I don't, can't remember. Anyway, so there was this whole dilemma going on all over social media about whether or not it was ethical for someone to have, for her to have this child. And she was getting completely ripped online. And she was saying, you cannot deny me and say it's inappropriate for me to have a baby because I can't move the muscles in my body completely. She said, I can still care for a child. I can provide soothing with my voice. I can hold it on my lap, like have it placed on my lap. Um, She has care for her near 24-7 if her boyfriend isn't caring for her. So she has support workers with her. Um, and people were saying, well, you're not going to be raising your child. You're not going to be able to change nappies. You're not going to be able to feed her. You're not going to be able to pick her up during the night. That will literally 100% rely on your support workers or your extremely unstable boyfriend. So since um, she's just had the baby, the baby's a few weeks old, And since then she posted on her Instagram saying child protection services and she's in America have come four times already. Um, and, uh, make, and there's a case against her based on doctor reports potentially, or just, she's very open. Um, should I should also mention, I don't know if this is how much of a factor this is, but she and her partner make an income through only fans, um, and hey. that's how they can afford all these things. The disability niche is quite big <laughs> um, on certain forums, so she makes okay. money from it. Good on her. Um, but people are saying she is exploiting the child because she posts photos on her Instagram where she is topless. She's covered her nipple with a flower and the baby's on her bare chest, and they're saying it doesn't look sexual at all. 
I'll say literally not in the slightest. You can look it up now, wheelchair Rapunzel. It doesn't look sexual at all, but people are saying, first of all, there are apps to remove emojis. And secondly, you shouldn't just post and put a baby in a photo like that, especially because people have commented saying, I want to see you both naked about a a newborn baby. So there's all these ethics um, where it teeters on, are you being ableist to say you have an issue with it? and saying disabled people shouldn't raise children. And then the people that are against her say this is nothing to do with her disability, it's the inappropriateness of her situation, the instability of her partner and the safety of her baby. But it's a really like interesting ethical dilemma exactly of personal freedom because she's like, you can't stop me from doing this. I'm within my right I can provide the care, but now the government is can is you know questioning whether or not she can provide mm. that appropriate care, and if they determine she can't, that child will be removed from her, and then there'll be a whole other dilemma of removing a child from someone just because she wasn't physically able to pick up the child, and she had to rely on someone that may lack stability. Um, but then is that also discrimination against him because he's an addict and he has sought support from it and he's been to rehab recently. He is a pa- there's rumors saying he's back on drugs, but is that discriminatory to say he can never be an appropriate parent and just needs more support? So it's just like fascinating to watch from an outside. I don't have an opinion personally based on whether I think she is a safe or appropriate person. I can't tell. And I've worked in child protection, so I don't actually have an opinion on that. But if you go through her Instagram comments and or on Reddit or TikTok, there is such a divide and people just fighting so hard at each other in the comments. It's crazy. But yeah, really interesting. That's, that's very <laughs> interesting. That's a minefield, hey, because – yeah. I think you get too restrictive if you're denying people the ability to have children. Um, I've thought yeah. about that. Even there's been the uh, hypothetical proposed that say someone has a, or a, a disease that they know their children will have and it's quite a debilitating disease. Okay, do you, do you say to that person you just can't have children? But a lot of people might say yes. But then where do you draw the line with something like that? Where do you say, you know, if someone – if a child had an 80% chance of developing a disease that a parent had, that's quite debilitating and painful. All right. Do you then say they're not allowed to have children? And then how do you police something like that? I think you got to just let, it's too hard to have any restrictions on anyone potentially having children. Yeah. So like, I yeah. think, yeah, it's a bit on, sounds a and bit. And what makes an also the drug addict parent. and yeah, the, yeah. um, in unstable boyfriend, drug addiction, yeah. that sort of thing. Uh, it doesn't doesn't sound like the best environment for a child, but but even if he wasn't in the picture, I wonder what how would the ethics change if she was say a solo single parent. However, she couldn't do anything physically unless the baby was placed onto her lap. So she can't change nappies. She can't pick her up to comfort her. She can soothe her with her voice. But what are the ethics then around mm. that? Um, well, because then other people are needed there and it's not just yeah. you. And then and it goes into another picture of when yeah. you someone's being hired as a support worker for a 29-year-old woman and yet you then have to care for a secondary 
baby as well. Um, but then there are women mm. with the same disability who are in, I'll say, more healthy or what appears to be healthier relationships and no one has an issue with that because their partners appear to be dependable and trustworthy and capable of caring for his wife or partner, the mother, even though she's in a wheelchair and has the same disability and the baby. Um, so maybe it is more so just about the fact that it's her boyfriend Noah has this history, but yet he gets not as nearly as much hate as she does. So then it's like, is it our preconceived judgments on on women with disabilities of this um of this debilitating for physic physicality and then should we be shaming her or should we not be shaming her and when you look at the comments it's like people are like they're in those two camps on how powerful shame is should mm. don't shame someone because she has a disability or she's dated someone with a history of drug addiction or she should be shamed because this baby can't have abc done for her so yeah, it's um, it's interesting to observe. It's very, very interesting, interesting, isn't it? Because yeah. a lot of this uh, sort of social justice advocacy, which is the, the era we're in, mm. can always get to a point where it's sort of it's it's not that it's too far; it's just almost unrealistic at some yeah. point. So, um, yeah. if say she sounds like she's still capable of of giving some rudimentary care to the to the infant, yeah. but yeah, if someone say hypothetically just can't actually can't do any care or or say in a, in a, if it's a sport organization or something and then all right you want to include people but then at the same time that team needs to try and win and it's the same with say hiring practices where the good kind of diversity is making sure everyone has an equal opportunity to show their talents and if anyone does have any implicit biases I'm not cons I'm not too uh convinced on the data on implicit biases they're a bit mixed but if they do we have to ameliorate against that and have some minimum requirements for certain groups but then at the same time if it's a job that say needs physical strength well you got to discriminate you got to positively discriminate yeah. in favor of people who have <laughs> better physical yeah. strength yeah. otherwise the whole organization suffers and yeah. similarly if it's a high level corporate financial firm we, everyone's discrete. You, you're, you're discriminating positively for people who show more competency in that area of um, study. Uh, so you're not going to get someone there who got zero yeah. on economics, right? And you need to discriminate. And the world is not always uh, the, the kindest to uh, people who might not have, you know, talents or so, you know, might just have a very unfortunately a low iq or something like that and there then has to be a culture of some kind of care and 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 instilling some sort of dignity uh and you know ensuring that people still have a as good a life as is reasonably possible when they might not be able to you know not everyone can be in a high level law firm or not everyone mm. can people say you know you 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 work hard enough, your dreams will come true. And then this is a thing in the influencer space as well, mm. where it's people who have always, because it's worked for them, they assume that's any, what anyone else needs. And so there's this kind of yeah. toxic hustle culture of if you just wake up at 5 a.m. and commit to it and work yes. hard, you'll get that. No, your chances are you won't. It's not, you need to you stop won't. telling yeah. people that because it gives yeah. them this false sense of 
Um, and a sense ideal, of failing. Yeah, idealism. Exactly. And yeah. the majority of people won't get to that point. Yeah. And so then yeah. they 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 internalize that and think, oh, I'm a failure and I need to work harder when, no, there's a, there's a very finite amount of people who can become these self-help guru types. Yeah. And as much as I profess the the basic foundations of some of their teachings, you got to also be realistic and you got to also ensure that people aren't finding meaning and dignity in just purely um, money-driven or uh, what, what could be called, you know, commercial or capitalistic or corporate pursuits. There also has to be a sense of uh, dignity and, and physiological worth that comes from a community and comes from maybe if it is a religion uh, but a, a, a different sort of religion to the way that they've been imposed upon people previously or or a philosophy and I think that's something that a lot of us lack it's just like a a, a grounding philosophy uh, that gives us meaning regardless of how we perform in you know just secular pursuits like work or or even family or you know there's a lot of people who aren't achieving what would be called basic bastions of meaning such as a, a house or family and 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 children or just a middle-class life and then okay how do you make sure people still feel purpose and meaning in their lives um, if they can't have those things which a lot of people can't now and to me it's not found in this in the secular it's found in something spiritual it has to be some kind of mm, philosophy yeah. or 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 yeah a religion or like a, a newer a modern really or even the tradition you know the traditional religions for all their uh, flaws. They, they've worked for a very long time and given people a lot of happiness. Um, I was going to say something about that, what you were talking about there with the, but you, look, that's a very, that's a perfect uh, instance of, uh, yeah, at what point uh, can people's individual, oh yeah, that's right. Um, it just got, it just reminded me of say there, there are a lot of people who criticize maybe single mothers and things like that. And then you they don't ever, you know, it takes two to tango. And then there's a lot of these kind of guys walking yeah. around just impregnating women and not really yeah. thinking about the consequences. Yeah. And so then they got to be shamed. That, that, that kind of culture is pretty bad, I think, that sort of yeah. they call it baby mama yeah. culture or whatever. But it's 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 terrible and and look i'm not i'm not trying to say if you are a single mother that's bad i'm saying if there are people who don't plan to they just there are some people i know who are just like i want to i want to have a kid and then they just found the guy off tinder to impregnate them and then that's a situation where it's like yeah look you didn't think did you didn't this was selfish you, it seems like you didn't really think about this and the guy as well who didn't use you know just ca- recklessly came inside her. To me, it's like, all right, you got to at least try to find a partner. If you want to have kids, try to find a partner and do it in a way that's beneficial for the child. But then, now if that doesn't work out, there's no shame in that. But if you bo- both gave it your best shot and then someone is a single parent, fine. But when it's this situation where like everyone thinks they're, you know, they're Kylie Jenner or something who has billions of dollars and can very yeah. easily raise a child by herself mm. it's probably the nanny she's probably not even doing any of the raising but then that's you know when you're mm. out in the western suburbs of sydney and are on yeah. government support like that's 
Yeah. You're not thinking about that. To me, yeah I, yeah, I am a bit judgmental in that situation. It seems like you're not thinking about the child. And then the man who also contributed to that is not thinking about his responsibility there either. Yeah. Now, Adrian said that, and I things- were literally, we were just talking about this last night about how so many people I know are surprised that I haven't yet put um, Remy into childcare and that most people who have babies in Australia, basic because of the economy, um, have their kids in childcare full-time mm. already at just a few months old. And I was saying to Adrian, like, we're coming from a place of massive privilege that I can stay at home still. But it's also sad to think that these people are forced to, or maybe they're forced to because of the financial, but maybe they want to, I don't know, but um, are forced to put their kids into daycare five times, five days a week from 7.30 a.m. to 6.30 p.m., then they come home and go to bed. It's like you, someone else is seeing your child more than you. And then Adrian was saying, like, you shouldn't have children until you can afford to take some time off, unless you can afford to take time off and be with that child for the first year. And I was saying, well, one, that may not ever be a possibility, and then we do have a window of fertility. And two, people might not want to do that, may, may want to return to work. And then it's just like this whole interesting dynamic of we can't really dictate what's appropriate or what's inappropriate when people or what circumstances they can have babies, if they should have partners or not, or if they should be at work or be at home. It's so complex. And then, yeah, it just goes back to the cycle straight back to the question of the limits of personal freedom. It comes down to Mm. we can choose that. And what does our impact and our choices have on our children and future generations? So it's, um, yeah, it's it's interesting and everyone's going to have – such a different opinion. My brain is like, <laughs> it hurts now. <laughs> I haven't had, oh, no. I haven't seen you in like two weeks. So I haven't had oh, like a critical conversation <laughs> at all. Oh, this was, this talking was nothing. About. I could go for five hours, bro. This is, <laughs> this is, I love this. I'll, 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 let me say one thing before we yeah. finish. Yeah. Um, there's a good, there's an interesting, I think he's a psychologist, uh, Robert Henderson. He talks about, what does he call them? Signal. He basically talks about how previously luxury beliefs, that's it. I think I might have mentioned this on another podcast, but there has been historically people who were wealthy and elite would signal their status with wealth, sort of indicators of wealth such as you know material possessions, cars, suits, whatever it might be, whereas today wealthy, they still do that, but they'll signal their status with their beliefs and so they mm. might be the most mm. likely to be super woke, for example, when you know you can't, as you move down the socioeconomic hierarchy, those beliefs may not have the same positive impact on someone who's, say, you know, working class and, and making 40K a year, um, it's, it's say, something that might be empowering for a, for a woman who's on yeah. 160K a year at a hotshot law firm might be terrible for a woman who's on 40K a year yeah. doing nursing or something like that. Um, and so ironically enough, the, the whole class element has been taken out of a lot of these kind of modern social justice ideas and how is that affecting yeah. some of the people in the 
Um, it's so true. Like just that that exact example of saying you should be at home with the baby. That's a what is it luxury belief? <laughs> like you're signal, signaling I can afford to be at home for however many years I want with a child. Whereas in this day and age, not many people can. There's um, that, yeah, and then yeah, there's the luxury belief, like the Kyle, the Kylie Jenner thing, right? Like it's a luxury yeah. for her to be able to be a you know super empowered yeah. billionaire single mom, but then for some who might have a yeah. the the partner might not be ideal, but he still is there and present and does the best he can, and still yeah. you know there's an argument to be said. All right, like you got to try and make that work, but it, I mean, yeah, like like you're saying, these are these are these are. Um, brain hurting topics. So, um, appreciate you discussing that. I think that was pretty. That was a very enjoyable one. Um, yeah. And I hope you guys all enjoyed it. Uh, let us know your thoughts. You love the critical yeah. thinking. I like the ones that are juicy and scandalous. Yeah. I like waifuism. <laughs> and yeah. you're like, I want to think of something so complex. I think abstractly. Yeah. <laughs> I don't like talking about individual people. It's boring. <laughs> but. Yeah, that's why it's good. That's why it's good. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, um, I'll let you get back to the baby. And um, everyone, thank you for listening. Comedyuntamed.com, neilkohaka.com slash tickets. Got some live shows on sale, crushorgains.com. Follow us on all the social medias and share this podcast to someone who you think would benefit from it. See you next time. See you next week.